and welcome to Kickout 299. We have a special episode coming at you today. We are sitting here with Dr. Jonathan Foy to discuss his second book that he has written, The Muto Years. Say hello, Dr. Jonathan. Hi, yes, thanks for uh, having me on again. And uh, just excited to have a chance to talk about this book finally coming out after what feels like you know, it's been a few months, but what felt felt like forever. Yeah, it really hasn't been that long since your first release with Gomburu and you sat down with Alicia and talked about that just at the beginning of the year. Yeah, it's just with these these projects, I'm sure you both can relate to this. It feels like a lot longer working on them than it actually is. And this, yeah, this book, it was basically the sole thing I did outside of my other work there was no leisure time for me apart from that for a little while there so yeah it definitely has been one that I feel like I've been waiting on forever it's been in reality maybe a few months what made you decide to write about sort of this specific era of all Japan you've uh, sat down and wrote you know about the Muto years and sort of a direct continuation of Gomburu um was that sort of the reason why did you want to write a continuation or was there another reason that this era of all Japan fascinated you yeah so um really both of those things so it's kind of in some ways the direct follow-up to the first book the, the direct um kind of comment that I saw some people make was uh, they would have liked the, the first book to have been longer and to go into some detail about what was to follow up. But I always thought that's a whole different book. And, you know, the first one was all about the split. And I always thought I was surprised that no one had written a book about the all Japan split. I found that so fascinating. I was always surprised that I was the first one to get to do that about that in English, at least. Um, but with the second it's a direct follow-up to the first, obviously, but also I think there's something fascinating about, well, first of all, Keiji Muto is as a person in himself, right? You could write an entire biography about him and I'm hoping someone does that now that he's looking at retiring. But um, apart from that, this, this time period in all Japan history is so fascinating. It's very much like classic all Japan in many ways with the layout of the matches, the classic matches that they have the way that the triple crown is positioned and yet in many other ways it's so different to any other era of all japan it's not like king's road it's not like the years before that in terms of 70s and 80s all japan it's got someone very different leading the company and for some fans this is the time that they can't stand that it was not like all japan um that comment Fumi Saito makes several times in the book. He says this was not like real Japan, uh, real old Japan. I mean, uh, real Japan's a whole nother promotion. But um, <laughs> the, the fans were saying at this time, the classic old Japan fans were saying, please do real old Japan. And there's this thing, it's departed somehow from how a lot of people envision what old Japan's about. So I found that fascinating because uh, this is my first exposure to old Japan was watching some of these matches and hearing about how it's so different to all Japan at their peak and kind of seeing at this time, the matches that Muto was having and some of these other guys. And there are so many great matches and so many great moments in this 
era that I almost feel like it's underrated. So I, I felt like I wanted to reclaim some of that as well. And there's just such a, a, an amazing story too. I, when I look to write one of these things, because it, you know, it takes a while. Um, you want to have a couple of cool stories to tell. And to me, you've got everything here, the drama of how he comes to, to jump from new Japan, old Japan, the way that he is kind of brought down by the backstage fight, the drama behind the way that Kobashi retired and then um, kind of or was initially pushed from Noah and then the defection of burning. You've got ups and downs and allegations of Yakuza involvement at some points as well, um, which was, we can get into that. But um, <laughs> to me, there's just, a, yeah, there's, I don't want to give the whole game away because then no one will have any reason to read the thing. But there's such a, rich story and so many ups and downs to that that i thought this is dramatic and this would be easy to write because i'd look forward to writing about all that stuff so yeah it's those two reasons it's it's the follow-up and it's the fact that it has such a richness to that story i think and it's such a controversial era in all in all japan history so many people will tell you i love this time period or i hated this time period and there's very few people that are somewhere in between on that and um, I, I love this time period. I think um, I think you have to view it as almost being a different thing, almost being a different entity to Baba era old Japan. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk more about that uh, for sure. But um, that's that's interesting that you mentioned the drama because uh, yesterday Alicia and I were actually talking about sort of how this compares and contrasts to uh, I'd say like sort of the drama of um, Gombaru and how, uh, as Alicia said in her beautiful review of Gombaru, that uh, it was very much this family drama played out in the public eye where this is very much, you have this business and social drama depicted in the book. So um, that is very interesting that you sort of pointed that out and, and talked about that. And I think uh, that what you had just said is a very good trailer um, as, as it were for the book, very much uh, some of the, the most dramatic parts. I think I'm just here to sell the book on. I've got some questions to answer, I guess. But no, um, I, to me, I think the reason that you see that difference there is All Japan was a family business on the, the barbers and it really, you know, it wasn't the same after the sale to Muto and his partners. And that's why I think you see the shift. And also it's just, it's not a great time business-wise for the industry in um, those years from 2002 to 2013. It really takes a massive slump and people like Fumi Saito at the time were saying that they did not know if there would be pro wrestling in Japan after 2007, 2008, um, that it was such a dramatic dip in popularity over and against Japanese MMA that um, there's an open question at that point about whether there's a future for this industry and whether or not these guys will have jobs. And I think that that's the, the thing that, that stands out to me in that time. So there was definitely a very different story to tell from, for this one than there was for Gumber, um, especially, yeah, especially after the sale of the company. One thing I want to point out, Jonathan, that I found fascinating and we had touched on this a little bit in our interview together when we were talking about Gombaru, but something I kept coming back to when reading through the earlier part of the book is 
especially because Muto immediately starts to make these very big changes to All Japan that take this company away from being a family business, away from being All Japan as it had been known. And he takes this in a very different direction from what Motoko Baba, I think, would have wanted and perhaps was maybe entrusting him to do. And yet she did trust him. And I believe that it was Genichi or Tenru who had also been sort of vying for perhaps um, control of the company at that time as well. But and, you know, Tenru had his issues with All Japan as well. He had walked away in the early 90s, which sort of triggered um, the Four Pillars era and King's Road era of All Japan. And he comes back, um, you know, it's a big part of Gombru. He comes back to help save the company at that time. Atoko Baba calls him, he comes back. But I'm just sort of fascinated because I think what that part of the book in, in the Mudo years, like where, where you start with that, it sets up this theme of, of outsiders becoming very, very important figures to the Mudo era of all Japan, right? But, you know, one of the first things that Mudo does is he takes, you know, um, Giant Baba off the program. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's, that's huge. And she did not think that he was going to do that, obviously, Matoko Baba. So I'm just wondering, Jonathan, if through writing the Mudo years, you have a sense of why she trusted him, you know, Mudo, an outsider, over someone like Genichi or Tenru, who was a son of all Japan, despite his issues with the company. I don't have any actual firm answer as to why it was that she went with, and this is one of these like questions that I really wish I'd followed up through me on, but uh, my sense there is just that for one, like, let's face it, Muto is a very charismatic and charming individual. Right. And someone who probably came to it knowing exactly who his audience was and exactly what he had to say, exactly what her concerns were. And if we look at that time period, her husband had passed away three years prior. Her concern was to get all Japan to their anniversary and get through that anniversary show in 2002. And then she was going to shut the company forever. And somehow she changes her mind from that to then being willing to simply part ways and get out of the industry. Uh, she wasn't a wrestling fan. She wanted to uh, kind of move on um, with her life and to move into something else. She paradoxically comes back a couple of times, including uh, one that's outside the scope of the book when Akiyama brings her back briefly there. She's a fascinating person, you know. Um, I don't know exactly... What it was there, um, a comment that Fumi Saito made that I'm just speculating here, so please just take this as some informed speculation. Uh, in Gamburu, I think I mentioned this, that uh, Matoko Baba was not inclined to kind of say what was always on her mind and in her heart, that she would not let someone know if she had forgiven them, for example. Fumi makes the comment in Gamburu that even if she had, she wouldn't say it ever. So, And he said at some point, even when it comes to Genturo Tenryu, um, that even to him, um, he doesn't think she would talk about whether or not everything was forgiven from him leaving the company in the way he did in 1990. And there maybe wasn't necessarily the full forgiveness there was the sense I, I took away from what Fumi had to say. So whether or not she was in a position to entrust all Japan to Tenryu with all their past baggage is another thing. And again, this is all speculation and, um, sadly, I think with one of the key players now having passed away with Matoko Baba, um, she can't confirm or deny any of that as to what exactly her thought process was. Um, mm-hmm. So I wish there were some key interviews there um, with her. I wish there was some content there that I could dive into. 
like I said, part of this is just me speculating, but I, I take it that Muto being as charismatic as he was, he's probably able to sell her on the idea that he, rather than Tenryu, um, would come to this thing with this fresh approach, these fresh eyes, but still try to stay true to the spirit of all Japan. Fumi Saito firmly believes that there's no way Muto could have done that because he's not trained by Giant Barbie. He was trained by the late Antonio Inoki. And as an Inoki devotee, he, according to Fumi at least, could not understand all Japan. I leave that as an open question in the book as to whether or not he actually could understand what all Japan was. And that's the other thing about this era. Uh, it's up to you to decide whether or not this is faithful to all Japan or not. And there are very different answers on that one. Yeah, it's it's kind of, I almost, I want to pry almost a little bit. Um, I know you said it was an open-ended question, but one thing that Alicia and I both sort of, um, and Alicia specifically asked, uh, was do you think that if Muto could have a, adhered, and if Muto did adhere to Baba's, I guess, wrestling philosophies, quote unquote, would that have changed anything? Would that have changed the era or was it just inevitable? On one level or another, the company would have changed. And Muto did say in an interview that uh, a lot of the backlash that they received, he thinks, was simply because people could not adapt to the new thing, but because people were, I include this quote, that he, people could not get past the fact that Bob was gone. And, um, and so to some extent, I think he would have made changes regardless. But maybe there might have been some retention of a more kind of classical approach to faces versus heels, more of a subtlety there. Um, yeah. Maybe there wouldn't have been such over-the-top kinds of gimmicks. Um, I don't know. It, yeah, I, I, would, I would love to know also, uh, I guess, kind of what relationship Muto had to Baba. Kind of did he follow him ever was he ever kind of um fascinated by the guy or was he so enamored with new japan and with Inoki that he couldn't see past that but yeah i i think that there are elements though of all japan from this era that are faithful to classic all japan and i think there it's more like classic all japan than a lot of people would care to kind of acknowledge and definitely things that i love in in all of that um so yeah it's definitely an era worth digging into and that definitely has those elements to it if you look here's a follow-up question to that because i was fascinated by some of the comments that fumi was making in the book in regards to satoshi kojima who becomes yeah. one of the the big breakout stars of the Muto era and you know you talk about this you know you do a fantastic job in the book jonathan of illustrating how important certain figures are to this era and kojima is one kawada is another and we'll talk about kawada as well but what is related to this question for me is kojima at one point you know he's there for a while in all japan and then he leaves he goes right back to new japan and it's pretty sudden and fumi makes this comment of no matter what, Kojima kind of set up to have a reign that was going to be forgotten because it happened during the dark years of the industry in general. So there's no helping that in some ways. But also, Fumi makes the comment that for Kojima, he was always going to look and wrestle like a New Japan star. So he was going to have a harder time getting over in an All Japan ring. That is sort of me paraphrasing off of what Fumi yeah, was making yeah, yeah. Um, that comment toward. So my question 
is this. We see, we've seen today um, examples of, of stars, you know, going to different companies and, and really, you know, getting over. We see today Satoshi Kojima getting over in pro wrestling Noah, right? He's, he's you know, doing fantastic in Noah. Uh, we see the example of Kenta coming into New Japan and doing extremely well for himself, although there was an initial pushback from the New Japan audience no. of Kenta hearing there. So you have these tangible examples of people being able to move from company to company and doing well. Uh, why was it so difficult for someone like Kojima to do, um, to kind of shed that new Japan identity and really do well in an all Japan ring? Is that something that is just so specific to the all Japan culture that they couldn't really mm-hmm. get around that? Mm-hmm. Like, what are your thoughts on that, Jonathan, after spending so much time in that era? I think from what comments Fumi's made from the comments I've seen from the Japanese fan base, there's this kind of coding with Japanese wrestling um, with the way the fan base perceives some of the wrestlers and there's that loyalty to the companies that despite the fact that you, you put, as you pointed out, that there are a lot of big moves that happen. There are a lot of people that make, they, when they defect, it's not just a small, I guess I'll go over here for a little while. It's a big time defection. It's viewed as a huge thing. There's such loyalty to these companies that a lot of people, even today, to some extent, get coded as being this person is an all Japan guy. This guy is more of a new Japan guy, such that when, you discuss, you know, could this person fit here or could this person make a move from old Japan to new Japan? That's a comment and sentiment. I see a lot more with Japanese pro wrestling that I detect is someone who is part of new Japan moving over to Noah say uh, will be perceived as this is a new Japan guy. Um, Kenta initially was viewed as being a King's road guy as being a, noah wrestler which was part of why he had that backlash um from the audience and so you would not necessarily encounter that as much with pro wrestling that happens in the states for instance like people will dive from wwe to aew and by going back the other way there is of course that that debate sometimes about whether or not they should be pushed and on what level that they should push people from another company but in the main people are used to that being an element whereas it still seems to be a big deal in Japanese pro wrestling that if someone switches from one company to another, they bring with them the training, the style, the approach. And um, yeah, Kojima, uh, I, I always thought from what I saw of him and from the classic matches that he had, especially that one against, and I think my love for this match shines through the book because I mentioned it plenty of times, but the match that he had against Kawada where he won the title. I think you can see he's that he adapted to the style. I think you can see that he adapted to more of what you consider to be the King's Road style or something close to it in that match. And um, I, I think though that people in Japan, especially the fans, they have their loyalty, oftentimes just one company and oftentimes to uh, that one particular style and will code their wrestlers as this person belongs to this particular brand. And that makes it hard for them to shed that label a lot of the time. Um, yeah, in the case of Kojima, though, he's managed to travel through so many different companies. And I, I hope that I, I very much appreciate what you said um, that I highlighted him because that was one of the goals there was to, I think he's still, despite being the guy that has won all of the major titles, he's still somehow overrated in my mind, uh, underrated in my mind or underappreciated as someone who has done so many legendary things. I think we're not used to thinking of him in that way, maybe because he was in that new Japan dad role for so long uh, working with young guys. So um, yeah, it's one of the people I definitely wanted to highlight in the book. So too was um, Taiyo Kea. Um, there's a lot of people in this era, which is why I love it, that are underrated 
by today's fans, I think. No, absolutely. I mean, you definitely did a great job of highlighting some of these more or less unsung heroes that once you get out of King's Road and move into the Mudo eras, you don't get that sort of, you know, same appreciation for that era as you do for sort of, you know, King's Road and then moving into the more modern era of all Japan. So that really does come across in the book. And I, and I just want to say like one more on, you know, more, one more related question rather to this train of thought, but you highlight multiple times where all Japan and new Japan seem to figure out a way to come back together and work to work with each other multiple times. But that relationship has really changed so dramatically today. I mean, the last time I think you can, you know, you can correct me if, um, if you have a different sense of this, Jonathan, but the last time I think you can feel that sense of rivalry between the promotions, probably around 2008, when you have Suwama winning champion carnival and and Tanahashi's in the carnival as well. And you get that sense of like new Japan versus all Japan. And it's like intense, but that rivalry really has cooled over the years. And we're sort of in a weird, like weird period right now where there's there's cooperation because of the 50th anniversary stuff but that cooperation is very muddy and we don't really have a great sense of what that cooperation is going to be now and even moving forward and so I'm wondering through writing the book I mean what is your sense of of what that relationship can mean for the future I mean can we expect to see Mm -hmm. um, anything from them in the future in the way that they've seemed to have made it work in other eras of the companies yeah yeah um, so I think there's a comment that Fumi Saito made that I that kind of opened my eyes a little bit on this one, which was when he said none of these companies work together when business is good. Um, when business is going well, you don't generally tend to see them cooperate. Like so, in the height of '90s New Japan, '90s All Japan, when they're both viable, popular brands that are drawing big houses you don't see as much by way of those shows. You certainly do in the very early part of the 90s, but not so much crossover happens when they're both at their peaks. Mm-hmm. When the business is down, that's when there's more um, to be said for cooperation and the business is not as cutthroat in Japan as it is perhaps in the States. And so um, I would sort of suggest there that maybe right now in Japan where it's not an odd and interesting point right now with the pandemic raging and everything like that because you've got this international fan base that they're appealing to now um you've got all japan slowly kind of taking off in terms of i I detect anyway there's a change in sentiment that fans seem to have toward the company there seems to be a little bit more buzz and hype around it after the uh the recent show at the budokan it's an odd thing because a show at the budokan can have about five thousand people and that's considered a success that definitely wouldn't have been the case years ago. And so at an odd, an odd point where that's, you know, you're not during a pandemic going to get big crowds. And I think because of the pandemic, because of certain things that are happening domestically, Japanese pro wrestling is going through an interesting time in terms of on one hand being quite popular and the other hand, seemingly not that popular in terms of live crowds. And so there is some impetus there to work together to try to get whatever draws on the card that they can get. And I think, um, that's why we're seeing Nagata almost full-time committed to all Japan at the moment while working with new Japan still and training their guys. Um, we're still seeing big names like that. And um, Nagata is very much coded as being a new Japan guy. That's why we saw that amazing match that we had recently with him leading the, the new Japan young lions against the young boys from all Japan, along with Takuya Nomura just being in there as well. Um, I loved I think it was Xavier's comment about that, which was that 
basically Ken's there just going, oh yeah, I'm just bringing the young boys from old Japan. That's Takuya Nomura. He's just a young boy. Look at these tights. So yeah, um, it was, I, I think we're going to see a little bit more of that while business is, when I say down, I think you know what I mean, right? They're still making a lot of money. It's a, it's an odd point. Um, they're, they're making a lot of money and yet crowd, like live attendance is kind of down in a lot of, lot, lot of companies. Um, yeah. So I think, it, yeah, I think it's a fair comment to say they'll work together when that fits them. And I hope that I, I've enjoyed it. I enjoy the crossover stuff. I think in this era of all Japan during the Muto years, you almost had too much crossover to the point where it was a little hard to distinguish between brands, mm-hmm. but definitely um, I think we're going to, we're going to see it as long as there's a business reason for it. And I think there is for the time being. Yeah, that's pretty much what I sort of wanted to bring up was that um, that walled garden approach that uh, KG Muto eventually is just sort of, he almost immediately sort of tears that down and opens up all Japan for business. And um, like, do you sort of think that the fans kind of realized immediately like um, that that kind of meant business was down and saw that more as a bad thing than as a good thing? This hard thing to kind of work out because on one level, um, when he made that first kind of approach in 2002, um, he took over as president and that um, first announcement that he was willing to work with other companies comes at the point where at some point in September, all Japan have their anniversary shows and a big party to celebrate the company's 30th anniversary. And uh, during that time, he had a speech where he said that he was hoping to work together with some more companies. He mentioned Noah, he mentioned Zero One, and he had all these guests that were at this party, uh, including um, the founders of Zero One and including some of like the key members from that company um, were in attendance. So Hashimoto was there. So he mentioned Hashimoto by name in that speech. So at that early point, I think it's because he wanted to kind of establish his own new unique brand and part of pro wrestling love, pure or love, however you want to put that part of his approach to all Japan was the walled garden comes down. Like Mr. Gorbachev tear this wall down. Um, <laughs> he, I wish I'd, I wish I'd included that line and forced that in, shoehorn that in there at some point <laughs> in, the, in the book. But, Missed opportunity. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I swear I'm going to actually write a good book one of these days, just full of these missed opportunities <laughs> just by themselves. But so he did that from the get go. My point is business was good at that point. Business was okay. Mm. It wasn't until later. Um, I mean, it wasn't anything like it was in the 1990s. It wasn't uh, nearly as good as it was at its peak, but, and they definitely were feeling the bite of that. And he commented on that in an early interview as well, but if you look at the popularity of it at that point, you could still see big crowds and they definitely still could attract a decent enough crowd to warrant booking the Rio Goku uh, Sumo Arena. Uh, not the Sumo Hall. I've tried to train myself out of calling it Sumo Hall. But basically in all of that, you could still have a viable crowd at the Budokan. You could still have viable crowds at big arenas. And so business was not bad when he opened things up. So I think it's more of his personal philosophy there. But as he continues on, I think you see such a kind of a, a weakening of the boundaries between the companies. And I think it was for that reason. I think it was because 2005 to maybe 2009 was such a down period for them. I think you start to see some recovery points from there. Yeah, definitely a thing there where there's more impetus to work together more closely as business was down. 
But the other, yeah, the other point I, I wanted to make with the book that I don't know if it's clear or not is when Muto takes over, business was better than you would think it was. A lot of people think that the split, the old Japan split from the year 2000 was what derailed their business, but they were still drawing huge crowds and were still even profitable after the split happened. So it's not until later that business really starts to bite and really takes a downturn. You make the point in the book that all Japan was still running the Budokan even after. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make the point as well that one of the first things that Misawa did when making Pro Wrestling Noah, besides letting everyone change their gear color, which they were stoked about, was (laughs) um, he also tears down the walled garden approach. That was something that he had wanted to do, you know, even before leaving all Japan and he was not going to get what he wanted. But that's something that he did immediately. And Noah's business, which Jonathan illustrates in the Mudo years as well, Noah's business was great for a while. Noah was running the Budokan. Noah was running the Dome. So um, it wasn't, you know, they knew in the beginning, um, in the early 2000s, that things were not. Um, and Giant Baba knew this too before he passed away. He knew that things were getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, he was implicitly aware of this. But going into the early 2000s, when it's Misawa running Pro Wrestling Noah and then Mudo running All Japan, it's not a disaster yet. It takes a little bit of time to get there. Jonathan illustrates this beautifully in the book, but Noah was insanely profitable in the beginning and Noah is doing better um, than all Japan on the outset. So you do get a sense of that through Jonathan's work. It was interesting because Noah became the number one company in this time for a little while there um, through a couple of years. And they did that at the expense of all Japan and then at the expense of new Japan, they, they managed to leapfrog from birth and kind of become that hot ticket. And and yet it's still being, I think Chris Charlton put it, that they were the, uh, that, yeah, Chris Charlton says this in Eggshells, that this company, Noah, had the biggest slice of the pie, but the pie was shrinking. Mm-hmm. The industry was contracting. They managed to leapfrog the other two competitors um, at a time, though, when the prizes were not perhaps what they could have been before. And um, there's also, I think, and I'm exploring this right now uh, as far as my current work goes. Um, I'm currently working on a book. Um, I've mentioned it before here. I've mentioned it before on the Eastern Lariat. I'm pretty sure I'm okay to talk about it. But um, as far as uh, I'm working on a book about the history of pro wrestling nowhere at the moment and just getting to that point as they're about to kind of really take off. But um, I think that there's always that question there with Noah's peak, peakiest, so to speak, as to kind of, you know, uh, the involvement allegedly of the Yakuza in this time and the kind of um, involvement that they had and kind of how much that played into things, we'll never know the full extent. That'll always be a bit of a mystery, but that's always one factor that's there in the background when you analyze this era. That's definitely going to be one I look forward to digging into a little bit more, but I'm I'm working on a book for Hybrid Shoot at the moment um, about the uh, era of Noah's biggest highs and biggest lows because much like all Japan, they too have had some of the highest peaks in the industry and then some of the roughest low periods as well. And I think we're kind of somewhere in between at the moment, as far as Noah goes Um, and the Noah fandom, I'm sure would would appreciate that point as well, but they're going to be running the Tokyo Dome in February. I'm kind of, I'm kind of kicking myself that little bit that I'll be there in January that I can't just hang around Japan for a month and um, be there for that show as well. But yeah, no, we'll be back in the Tokyo Dome soon, which was what they did at the height of their their business. So like I say, funny point in terms of the industry right now. And they'll be uh, getting to the Dome 
on sort of the back of none other than the man of the hour here, huh? <laughs> With uh, yeah. right back to good old Keiji Muto. Uh, so the back you, in the knee, the short knees of Keiji Muto, yeah. <laughs> right on the right on the knees, the uh, cybernetic knees of Keiji Muto. You really can't deny a lot of the contributions he's made to the industry in, in general, but also sort of to all Japan. And um, that's something actually that uh, Alicia brought up was like, he made a lot of really undeniable contributions during this period, but how much of, I guess, would you say the long-term success of the promotion in, you know, sort of this, in his wake, if you will, came down to the people that came up behind him. Mm, Something, mm. you know. Kazayashi is mm. someone who he mm. creates essentially a real need for junior wrestling within all Japan. It just really didn't exist in the same way before Muto brought him in to really start that junior division. And also he takes, you know, a real role in the, in the booking of the company because you illustrate in the Muto years that, um, and I think maybe Fumi is the one who makes this point too, is that Muto only cares about himself. He's not out there yeah. watching yeah. the other wrestlers <laughs> perform. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that really becomes Kazayashi's job to be there working with the wrestlers and, you know, working with the booking and also creating yeah. this junior division that becomes, you know, pretty stellar over the, over the years in all Japan, where it didn't really exist in the same way before. So that's, you know, sort of the, the point, Jonathan, is, you know, there are some incredible things we can attribute to him, especially um, within the All Japan years, but there's also a lot of people and it's not just Kasayashi, there's other people, but, you know, do you have a sense of that, of like how much of this can really be attributed to essentially the people that Mudo brings in with him? Yep, definitely. Um, I mean, there are some amazing names that make their way over, just some amazing talent as well as Kendo Cushion. Um, but, sorry, my, my friend... <laughs> My friend Dave absolutely loathes Kendo Kashin, so it's become an in-joke amongst ourselves that, yeah, Ruto brought with him amazing talent and Kendo Kashin. But, um, but, you know, as far as those defections that happened, I think um, Kojima was a big one in terms of, with All Japan, I, I make this point, or I tried to make this point anyway in, in Gumbaru, was um, a lot of this stuff is perception. So when the company is not doing so well, it's good for them to be able to shift the narrative a bit and have big headlines. And I think it was great that Muto could have other talent come with him and have that. Um, it was also not just talent. It was um, office staff as well. And I, th I think this is part of why the, the company changed as it did under Muto was the office staff that came with him from New Japan were not all Japan fans. And so the, when the people that are running the company and that are operating on the day-to-day -day basis and keeping things moving uh new japan fans rather than all japan fans maybe that goes to why we saw some of the changes that happened as well um so yeah i definitely think that it was some of the key people that he brought with him though that helped kind of pull the wagon at key points um in saying that he is such a huge icon in the industry that i think he was the major kind of news article the major um, headline in the whole thing was his defection i think that that was a big, big move for someone so tied to all Japan to be, uh, so New Japan to be making that move. Yeah, very iconic figure and um, someone that loves the spotlight for himself, which is why he loved working for all Japan at this point. So yeah, I think it's going to be an odd thing when he finally does retire to have him bow out of the industry if he actually does it. I, I almost, it, I think if not for the medical factors there, you wouldn't see him retire at this point, but um Anyway, yeah, I definitely think that there is something there to the talent that you see jump over at this point. And some of the people that were there before, like 
uh, Ty Okea, um, you know, he, he changes his name. He, uh, just after the split, I believe, um, he gets quite the push uh, that he never really had before that and quite a steady push throughout these years as well. Um, I think he was one of the key people pulling the wagon as well. And Jonathan, I actually want to talk about um, if you just want to share some details too, because you had a great interview with Ty Okea in your yeah. book. It was one of the highlights of the book and it was was great to hear from him, great to hear from his perspective. Uh, he tells an uh, incredible anecdote essentially about Toshiaki Kawada from that time period that has um, stayed with me. And you and I were kind of talking offline about this a little bit, just because you know how I get about a Kawada story. It just gets in my brain. I have to yeah, talk about yeah. it. So I'm uh, sort of fascinated by, you know, his recollection of, of Kawada from that time period and that, you know, Kawada was maybe perhaps not a nice man prior to the <laughs> roster split, but then, you know, post roster split that he was sort of um, a lot more casual and he was speaking in English to um, him and maybe some other people. And I'm just like wondering if you have anything else that you can sort of share from being able to speak to Taiokea and maybe some of your thoughts mm. on that like sense of Kawada through him, which is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just as far as people that actually made this book happen and viable, I think it was him and I think it was a few other people I interviewed. Um, when he was telling me that story, I'm like, oh, okay, I know this is going to be good based on the way he's like, oh, I've got a story here about, you know, that match he had with Kawada. I'm like, this is great. You know, when someone's talking, when someone's in your interview and you're just sitting there going, this is going to be insanely good for the book. And yeah, every time I spoke to him, it was like that. Yeah, I think he's one of these underrated guys uh, who did a lot for that company. And yeah, as he was talking about that, um, the sense that I kind of got there that I hope comes across is that Kawada was a complex guy, that he was not necessarily the one that a lot of the younger guys loved because of how he treated them he treated Akiyama fairly poorly as well. Um, Akiyama has said, and, uh, and yet also after the split, you see such a very different side to him in terms of the story that Taiokea had to tell about encountering him. It was more or less working for hustle at that point, but it was still encountering him in a hotel and having him like buy him beer and speaking to him in English and stuff like this. And kind of, yeah, I think there's one of the more complex guys in Pure and, um, someone that has so many different sides to him as far as Kawada goes. Um, I'm hoping to, at some point when I go over there, to have a chance to go to his restaurant and um, it would be a dream of mine to kind of give him a copy of the book and hopefully he doesn't dislike too much of what is in there if he can kind of read through it because I don't want to have myself stretch plumbed while I'm over there. But I think it, one of those things where uh, I hope that I've kind of given the complexity that he deserves in this book because he was one of the guys carrying all Japan as far as Kawada's contributions go in this point in the company as well. Like that long title stretch that he had, the the kind of matches that he had were something that I think yeah. the classical Japan fans could hang their hat on. Is that title run? Yeah, I think you do an incredible job in the book of illustrating how pivotal that title run is and how yeah. that title run in particular is what they use to make the Triple Crown remain such an important prize in, in Pearl. Because really at that time, the belts could have lost something, right? With all the, the turmoil, with the roster split and such. 
with Kawada's reign, they kind of cement this as something still to, to win, to want to win, to want to um, be a part of when you're, when you're wrestling for all Japan and you, you do a great job illustrating that. And I think that's, um, you know, we talk about unsung heroes of the Mudo era and Kawada is sort of different. He's a son of all Japan. He's, you know, he started there. He's been there for ages. He's very much a part of what you talk about in Gombaru and he has, he plays a role in the roster split, but he, um, he, you know, he's one of the unsung heroes and that for some people, I think that all Japan sort of ends at the roster split. There's this sort of gap where no one talks about the wrestling that happens there. And then I guess it must pick up kind of right where you sort of leave us at the end of the book with Kento Miyahara sort of emerging. Mm -hmm. Um, But that you miss the importance of Kawada and how he emerges um, as a pillar, a new pillar of that company, right? Because there's some other people that kind of form around that time period to save the company um, and keep it moving. And and Kawada's uh, reign during that time is just absolutely pivotal. And really, you shouldn't miss it. You know, if you have an interest in Kawada you shouldn't miss that wrestling and no I think you do an incredible job of um of illustrating that because there's a there's also this theme in the in the book that comes up a lot and Fumi brilliantly illustrates this but so do you as well is that even during this era of post-roster split um all Japan the matches are still incredible there's still incredible talent in all Japan the problem is that there are less eyes watching the watching the product um there's less people coming to the venues and there's less money being funneled into the promotion essentially so we're constantly mm-hmm. running into crisis but this there's this entire you know this entire uh, era of the promotion is still delivering incredible matches incredible wrestlers and the triple crown still means something and i think that's just like one of the things that i uh, keep thinking about when i'm thinking about your book the mudo years is that you know it's a shame that that sort of gets lost and i think that's something actually that gets lost a little bit when we're talking about contemporary or modern all Japan too, is that we do have less people watching all Japan today, but that's sort of the theme, isn't it? From sort of post um, roster split. So you can guess that you can start with the Mudo era all the way through is that, you know, there's less eyes on the product and perhaps less money than, you know, other eras coming in, but we still have great wrestlers and we still have great matches. And we still have a triple crown being important today. We've got the, that is still very much the, the, cornerstone of the company it's still very much every main event will be that it's well not every main event you know what i mean every every time that the triple crown is defended on the card it will be in the main event all japan currently because i think so many of you know when, when your entire company's roster you know in terms of the permanent roster when they leave to form another company i can understand why someone looks at that other company and says this is the true inheritor of the the all japan 90s legacy um, that this is that Noah represents that, but Noah can't be the sole claim to that. Is what I'm trying to say with his books. I think is that, <laughs> and I'm, I'm hoping to get attention on post split all Japan attention on the Muto years. At some point too, I'm just gonna have to write a third one in this series, um, self publish it as well. Um, in turn, and and once again get. Um, what I think is maybe some one of the best aspects of the book, maybe the best, is um, Muhammad Yassin's cover. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as that artwork went, I um, commissioned that, just telling him, do whatever you want to do, just please include some people from Muto years, old Japan. And he just went with that and ran with it. He had an idea in his mind straight away. And But yeah, definitely I have to do that again, just with contemporary old Japan, looking at the post-Muto years, under Shiraishi, the sale where Akiyama basically takes over the company, Akiyama's departure, the current era with 
the current ownership and the current leadership of the likes of Suwama and them going into the Budokan. I think there's a story to tell there as well. And a story that I think is just sadly missed uh, by too many fans. I think just because of the supremacy of New Japan and the uh, way in which Noah is held as the true successor to this giant bubble legacy. Um, yeah, so I, I think it just one of those stories that I think we have to tell. I think the All Japan fan base is still there, is still passionate, but it's just uh, not quite as loud, not quite as... Um, but I, I don't know. I detect, despite, you know, we spoke about it with the Budokan episode, um, despite some mistakes that they're making, and I could definitely do without the uh, the current involvement of the Voodoo Motors. Despite all that, I still think there's some buzz Right now, I detect some buzz behind All Japan going out of that, sh- that Budokan show. So um, I think this is a key time for it. It's why I've been writing so much about this company. Absolutely. You know, Jonathan, I'm super curious too, because when we were talking about Gambaru, you told me that you still saw a lot of Baba's All Japan, yeah. right? In today's promotion, that speaks to what you were just saying about Noah's looked at as the true successor of Giant Baba, what have you. But we, you know, we both agree that there is still a lot of Giant Baba in today's All Japan, but how much of Muto's All Japan do you see in today's promotion? Keeping in mind, too, that Fumi had this quote about how he, post-Muto, saw the promotion go back to sort of, you know, that very much like there's like very blurred lines around what, you know, what constitutes a heel and what constitutes a face, a very traditional style of pro wrestling. But I, I don't know, like, especially given today's product, how much of Muto do you see? In today's all japan there is one of the things that i'm kicking myself about this book is um I, i'd say at the very start too by the way that the book isn't exhaustive because i mean how could you exhaust everything right from that that time period there's so much stuff that happens that you wouldn't be looking at a short book by any means um one thing i'm, I'm kicking about that i missed was i wanted to include some reference to the fact that jake lee enters all japan at this time mm-hmm. and leaves. And, um, and and so that's one of their current big guys right now in terms of uh, Jake Lee comes into the company then, Suwama trained in the company at this point and then became a big star for them, that you have those guys that are in many ways leading the company today um, coming to the company at this during this era. So I think in that way, you see some of the legacy from this era of all Japan live on through them. Uh, some of the, the current booking, especially, I, I go straight to the voodoo murders. I think that's one of the negative examples in my mind of, uh, I know that uh, a lot of people have more favorable opinions of the voodoo murders than I do, but I guess to like, yeah, we, we see them um, currently in some main events and um, that was a product of this era too. Uh, I think that the comment was made on the, trying to think of the name of the podcast here, the Emerald Flow Show made the comment that, a lot of the nostalgia that we saw going into the Budokan show was nostalgia for this period of wrestling from 20 years ago. It was nostalgia for the Muto years, um, perhaps because that's where they could harken back to and that was the people they could bring in. Uh, they brought in some some Barber era guys as well and that, that you know, it wasn't a great match by any stretch, but it was still insanely good to see Fuchi and Onita and those guys um, have their moment. So there's definitely still some highlighting of this era. There's definitely some nostalgic callbacks and some of the people that were there then are still there now. Um, Muto had a chance to visit the All Japan Dojo during his time off after his injury uh, a couple of months back. And he said that he just went there, sat, watched some of the trainees, spoke to a few of them. He said, it's like I never left. You know, it's exactly the same as it was 
back then when um when he was uh, involved in the running of the dojo. So it sounds like they've still got a similar enough system to when he was there uh, in terms of how these guys are trained. Such a, in terms of this era, just something to, I hope that the book highlights is just how insanely good it was. The dojo in that era, in terms of the stars it produced, um, they're still across the wrestling industry as well, though not all of them in all Japan. The likes of Sonata, the likes of Kawada's trainee and Tai Chi, the, um, the people that kind of came off at that time, that they certainly had a big impact on. Um, and yeah, it's just such a factory producing all these wrestlers. So uh, I think that was a big impact that we still feel today as well. For sure. And um, I guess, sorry to make you bring it up again, but we really can't avoid the uh, the voodoo murders talk uh, <laughs> yeah. talking about this era, unfortunately. And um, actually, one thing that we want to sort of go to was that um, you cover in this book, um, the Hirai incident, which is just really just a horrible event. But um, in an interview, Fumi Saito mentioned that the Hirai incident was emblematic of the mm-hmm. worst elements of all Japan pro wrestling during Keiji Muto's time as company president. And that's huge. That's, that is a really big statement. And um, the uh, quote that, that we pulled was, if it were a happy dressing room and happy environment, that, came, that kind of thing wouldn't have happened, he said. That would be Fumi Saito. Something like that shouldn't happen under Muto's watch. And that just, it really symbolized the time period as a whole is what was written. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, in terms of all of this, I made the comment to someone recently that, and I'm trying to remember who, uh, oh yeah, okay, okay. So Oscar Bam edited the Muto years, my friend Oscar, um, was the main editor for this book. So he went through it all and he came out asking all these questions about Muto. Um, and the thing, I, the comment I made to him on the weekend, just randomly, as we're talking about this was, I think Muto should have had someone else in to run the business end of this company, to be the head there of um, kind of just hand all of the business decisions over to them and take care of the booking, take care of the promotion side. But, um, and so this, and he himself would say, this was the thing that he had to learn about. This was his weakness was, the actual day-to-day running of the business itself. And yeah, definitely this, this incident, it's an ugly one. And it's one that uh, is a huge stain on the uh, era as a, as a whole. And, you know, the Voodoo Motors, all of their talent are amazing. All of the wrestlers that are part of that faction are great. Uh, I don't care much for the gimmick itself, but I think my major issue with the Voodoo Motors is rightly or wrongly, I more or less associate them with that ugly incident. And Mm -hmm. that fight that happened backstage that led to a wrestler being permanently injured and having permanent uh, brain injuries to this day. Uh, And so it's just hard for me to dissociate those two things. I know other people don't have that problem with wrestling, with dissociating what happened backstage to what happened in front of the camera. But it was a very ugly aspect of the era that brought about the end of Keiji Muto's presidency. And um, I think that by itself kind of makes it a bit ugly. But with this, um, there was a particular kind of interview or, or something I read online where people were suggesting that the Harai incident uh, smacked of having Yakuza involvement. And the rumor was that Harai owed money. I go into this in a little bit in the book that um, he owed money to the Yakuza, which is why uh, this incident happened. That um, as far as... Uh, why it was that he was attacked and basically in that in that whole thing 
Uh, I looked into this. I asked one of the preeminent journalists in Japan that has covered the Yakuza before. I asked him, did you hear about any involvement? Did you hear this story? Did you hear that uh, there was this attack on a wrestler named Harai who allegedly owed gambler's debts to the Yakuza? And uh, this guy, he's the editor and founder of the Japan Times, and he was the author of the book um, Tokyo Vice, uh, basically told me he had not heard any of that, that there was no rumblings about that, that this guy who investigates the Yakuza had no information about that. I found no evidence that there was any Yakuza involvement in that. It seems to have been a matter of personal heat between them owing to Harai's uh, condition when he showed up at the arena and the voodoo murders having heat with him. Um, I don't think it was any Yakuza involvement in that. So that was one of my my major questions when I went into it. Yeah, I. That's my thing as far as that story goes. Um, that was my major question: was was the accuser involved with this? Because there have been podcasts, there have been sections of the internet that people have speculated on that, and I just think that speculation is unhelpful. And unfortunately, I don't think the story is anywhere near as interesting as it sounds in that respect. Yeah, it's always good when you can disprove a bit of misinformation because those things do carry a lot of weight. But I think that one thing that we do know is true that you talk about is that this incident forces Kyohei Wada to walk out of the company, which I think is actually one of the ugliest things to come out of the incident. And what you talk about is that he cites that it was Muto not taking action, not apologizing for the incident that takes him out. And I thought this was really interesting because it's these moments of the of inaction and of not following through on things that um, that Baba would have done, right? Baba would have taken a different type of leadership in a situation like that. Um, it makes me think of, um, you know, to jump ahead, makes me think of the actions that led to burning 3.0, leaving Noah and going to all Japan. And that boiled down to the disrespect that the office in Noah showed to Kenta Kobashi. It was just down to disrespect that they said like Misawa would never have done this to Kobashi. Yeah. And that also yeah. goes back to Giant Baba as well. It all connects. So that is what was fascinating me is I read that those it's those things that can really have these actions that just sort of reverberate. And I think that if you have something where Kyohei Wada is walking out of your company, that's when like things I think have reached a um, crisis point. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and um, I think that's kind of the low point of the entire, the entire thing. It's, it's um, probably, I know um, Gerard said of all of that, that um, it was the ugliest incident or the, the, the darkest day of the Muto years was the day that the attack on her eye happened. And as far as all of that sort of stuff went, I think it a shame because we had like such an interesting kind of time there. And one of, one of my what ifs is what would have happened if that assault didn't take place or if Muto managed to get a, a handle on it properly to begin with, if Muto managed to stay around as president of all Japan, what would have happened to the company after that? Would he have, as some people have speculated, would he have run it into the ground or would he have led it into a, into today and kind of uh, led it to new heights. I, I'd be fascinated to kind of hear what other people think about that kind of point. But yeah, that was the end of his presidency at that, at that juncture. He lingered on for a few weeks after that point, but um, definitely his inaction there cost him the role. And one thing I actually, I wanted to sort of bring it back to what you were talking about with sort of separating out misinformation and rumors. Um, one thing that you just do really, really well in this book is sort of um, 
covering those that misinformation and going through and um, that just nipper actually covers that in your forward that you are working through a lot of cultural nuance and a lot of um, different barriers to work through. And I just, I wanted to sort of uh, hand that over to you and, and talk about um, what you encountered while writing through this sort of to um, bring around um, sort of this, the theme of this book and sort of the, mm -hmm. um, the theme of bringing uh, this Muto era to life and making it more 3D and more accessible mm -hmm. to English speaking audience. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Even when you have translation um, seemingly at your fingertips and when we have so much access to seemingly being able to just Google translate stuff, that doesn't help you. That mistranslates things. That has incidents and things and nuances that get lost along the way. Even when you have access to the Wrestling Observer and um, for my money, uh, that's one of the better sources out there for archiving information and for seeing what reactions were like back then. Um, you still have these they're small things, um, but even something as small as people referring to Budokan Hall. I mean, it's it's not Budokan Hall. That's not a good translation of that or just things like oh, that are that small. They, they still crop up um, because of the fact that English speaking fans need to navigate the challenges of a Japanese product, um, the Japanese language. And even when you know Japanese, there are going to be nuances that will escape you. And I think as a result, within this context, you can, yeah, you can just see different misunderstandings occur. And um, also some of these stories that can kind of come up um, as a result. I mean, it's definitely an interesting story, the idea of Yakuza involvement. And there's at least one other story I've heard that seemed to indicate that Muto was um, involved with the Yakuza at this point, that um, allegedly that he uh, got them to do some of his dirty work. And I just don't see any actual evidence of that. It's hard. I mean, admittedly, it would be hard to find. It's like the Yakuza have a central website that records all their activities or whatever, but there's definitely a lot of rumor though, and no, none of it actually seems to stick anywhere. There doesn't seem to be any actual um, people from the industry who... Uh, have anything to spill on that or at least um, any tangible evidence of any of that occurring and so these stories are entertaining for a reason they're spicy but in terms of actual being able to pinpoint anything and say this is the proof this is the evidence that happened if Muto was involved with the Yakuza then why did the company have the financial difficulties that it had why did he have to struggle for so long with the company losing money why was it so racked with debt when he did finally sell to speed partners? That doesn't make sense to me. Um, at least if you were getting in bed with the Yakuza and the Yakuza had involvement with the pro wrestling industry at key points throughout its history, but, and he wouldn't have been the first to do that, but you would not think the company would be as debt addled as struggling as it was um, during that time, at least is my take on it anyway. So yeah, the, these stories are fascinating though. Um, I, I'm not saying, 100% that everything that I say in the book is the word of God on the subject or whatever. Not even, sorry, I don't even approach the Bible in that way. That's a whole other, whole other story, but uh, sorry, that's part of the other thing that I do for a living. And it's mentioned in the book. I mentioned it here and there is that I have a day job working for the United Church. I write about faith for a living that kind of intersects here with my other religion being pro wrestling. Um, so <laughs> that kind of comes across there as well. Um, and so there are different going to be, um, but part of my point here is that something that that job teaches me 
is when you're approaching a foreign text um, written by many authors, written by people with different opinions at the time, um, and you're trying to translate that text into English, you're not just, it's not a question of do you lose meaning? It's how much meaning do you lose? Mm -hmm. What is the appropriate word to use to translate? How do you get the author's original intent? And even then, what is the underlying bias of the piece that you were translating and how does that accord with your own bias and how you get all this information across as you write so yeah i just basically i didn't mean to compare the muto years to the bible but here you have it i've just accidentally stumbled across that comparison um but you you know what i mean right it, it, the translation process is something that's in crisis it's something that is um very difficult to get correct and even when you do you're going to miss out on some key nuances because of the approach that we have our worldview is quite different to that of the Japanese worldview. Um, and so I hope that I've kind of gotten into a little bit of that in the little bit of time that I have um, in the book to cover it. But I think that it's just something worth fans should just keep in mind as they approach the Japanese promotions that we follow that um, sometimes big stories can come across that are misunderstood. One other key one um, just really quickly was that when one of Noah's early investors passed away you know, circa 2016. New Japan bought into the company. They bought this person's shares. And so that story ended up reported in the West as New Japan buys per wrestling Noah because they missed out on some of the nuance there that they're only buying some of the shares, not all of them. So stuff like that can happen in the fandom and it is what it is at this point. No, you do a really good job in the, in just in through you talking about this, but also through your work of just sort of you do have to go a little bit above and beyond when we're approaching something that is not our language and not our culture. And it does help to immerse yourself where and when you can. There isn't sort of, um, that's what's great about your work is that you're sort of giving people who don't have um, the ability to do that immersion, sort of like here, here's you know what you can start with to learn about this stuff. And that's, I think, incredibly helpful for people. But in terms of really doing the work it, it's it's tough i mean you you brought up jake lee before if you go on jake lee's um you know english wikipedia there's a ton of information yeah. in that english wikipedia that is yeah. wrong that is not accurate about yeah. his life at all and it's very frustrating so you you have to be incredibly <laughs> careful but that is why um we love your work and why we support your work is that you take a lot of care um and you try to approach these um these subjects with a lot of care because there is so much context and nuance that we lose in it not being our language and it not being our culture and there's always going to be differences there so you really have to sit with this information very carefully before you try to speak on it but in in the work that you do Jonathan you never come across as someone who's trying to be the last word or authoritative just in trying to get good information out there for people to sort of begin with and I think that's critically important too to our little community and niche fandom here. I'm um I've said this before about Gambu and, and and thank you. Yeah. Thank you for all that. Um, uh, I've said this before about Gambu too, is I don't want this to be the last book that someone writes about the topic. I want someone else to pick up the threads from this and go write something else, go write something bigger, explore and dig into this a little bit, because I think Muto it would be a fascinating subject matter for someone to write a biography about. And I'm not necessarily saying I would do that either. I'd like someone else to take the reins on that one, <laughs> but yeah. I appreciate that. It, and it's definitely my intent is more to get the conversation happening and get other people to step in and to take the story further from there, because there's definitely more talking points there. Um, definitely more things I haven't fully investigated that would make a fascinating study. 
it's also a shorter book. Uh, it's not quite as short as Gumbaru. It's, um, but I could have written a much longer book about Keiji Muto. There are so many threads there that I hope someone will pick up on and, and take with them. Um, two people that helped a lot too, as far as dealing with this misinformation and dealing with some of these um, nuances were Fumi Saito, obviously, and Justin Nipper um, with his intro, uh, as well as the translations he provided along the way that I asked him about. So the um, it fascinated me, for instance, his take on uh, what he said about the Emerald Frosian being mistranslated, like that mm-hmm. that name um, probably being better translated as the Frozen Emerald. And that just blew my mind when he fucking said that. I was like, wait, what? I This is years of us saying the wrong thing. I, and he just go, went ahead and casually told me, yeah. So uh, there are definitely some resources out there um, for people wanting to follow up in terms of Justin's work, in terms of what Fumi has had to say. And I'm hoping someone gets around to translating Fumi's books um, that are currently in Japanese. Yeah, hopefully Justin will do more of that. And you can find Justin and Fumi at their podcast called Write That Down, which is over at Fight Game Media. And we will link to that in the show notes as well, because if you are listening, if you, well, you should be listening to um to one other podcast besides us. You should be listening <laughs> to oh, Justin I, and Fumi. See, this has been such a key thing as well. And if you look into it, I, I know I have to reference, I know I reference you guys at least a couple of times in the book as well as that I'm definitely digging into your work for the Noah book that I'm working on. So um, I think, I think it's just those two. I think those are all the podcasts you really need to listen to take that Dylan. Um, yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to plug the Eastern Lariat. Take that. No, I, I the Eastern Lariat do, do fantastic work as well. And I mentioned the Emerald flow show a few times as well, but so maybe there's like space in your life for two podcasts, maybe three, if you're lucky, but this is one of them. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. you. Wow. And, uh, you guys have put over my work so often have been so key to promoting it that I have to at least putting over. Yours, <laughs> uh, that I have to put you guys over and share your stuff at least thank a little you. bit. Um, and it's listed there in the, the back end of the book as well as far as the acknowledgement section goes and stuff of that nature. We appreciate you very, very much for that. And I do want to um, I want to mention something that we talked about. Gambaru, I, I wrote about it and then we talked about it in the interview and I want to parallel mm-hmm. it to something with the Mudo years that I really loved um, without giving, I think, too much away because I, I want everyone to go and buy this book and we'll plug that as well everywhere so that everyone can go get a copy or a digital copy, whatever you prefer. But I think that what strikes me with both books, comparing them back and forth, is that at the end of Gambaru, you're sort of left with this note of hope not just for, um, you know, pro wrestling Noah going on to do what they are going going to go on to do, but for all Japan pro wrestling and for, um, you know, the health of that company and being able to survive the Mm -hmm. roster split where you leave us at the end of the Mudo years is with the, um, you don't get into all everything that kind of happens with uh, the Akiyama years, I guess it's fair to call them, um, which is an entire book in and of itself, um, which Jonathan, I will, I I will, in your dms asking you to write every day but um (laughs) (laughs) so you you kind of leave us right with the introduction of kento miyahara who goes on to become uh the young ace of all japan and so again you're left with that note of hope and 
I just wanted to um, kind of get your your thoughts on that. Was that something that you were kind of aware of when you were planning for these books? Is were you you know were you aware that you were going to leave us there, and are you also implicitly aware that you keep setting us up with these incredibly cinematic sort of books? Are you still trying to pitch to HBO? Like I suggested, like I think we need to get that going. <laughs> Ah, uh, I can't believe I fucking forgot to pitch to HBO that idea. Uh, no, yeah. um, I I definitely had a few people that suggested that this lends itself to being like a documentary and that there could be a good one in that. And someone suggested I approach all Japan about that. I don't know how I would begin to do that. Um, but there's definitely a documentary in this. There's I, I've joked about it before that there's definitely like a Dark Side of the Ring episode, except there would be for if that show ever returns. Um, there would be a Dark Side of the Ring episode about the Harai incident. Mm-hmm. And about and look, because I mentioned it, surely I, I'm entitled to some say in that episode. But should that ever actually happen? I don't know where that, that, that series is at right now. They've definitely pivoted, I guess, to the... Tales from the Territory series that they're currently putting out. So whether or not we get to even see Dark Side of the Rings ever again, I don't know. But um, no, I, I definitely, um, well, for one, I, I want to sell another book. So I have to like keep something, in, you know, in reserve for next one. But no, seriously, I think um, I think that it's good to have these books be discreet as well in terms of having ones about the, the, the split, something else about the Muto years and something else about this other very different era. Um, and I think that that kind of is the thread there as far as uh, if you think about contemporary old Japan, people associate that with Kento Miyahara. He's kind of one and the same. Um, when you talk to people about who is the current star there, he's the name that comes up. He's the one that, when I talked about the coding about pro wrestling companies, I think he's kind of emblematic of and the embodiment of contemporary old Japan. And so I think he, you kind of have to leave with him um, as far as the transition between the two eras. And yeah, definitely. That's the thing that we take from the Muto years into today is at the, after shortly after the Muto years are over that Kento enters old Japan as the, their hope for the future. And uh, it wasn't a completely hopeless time. Um, despite so many people leaving, despite another roster split happening that the company could survive these key events and continue on is um, something quite incredible. And uh Something as to why I like writing about old Japan so much is because you have such highs and lows and such amazing things that might have ended another company yet they endure it. So uh, I hope to kind of pay tribute to that really in um, these works. And I hope that comes across that um, it's kind of a company with amazing endurance. Yeah, I definitely think it comes across and you really exemplify i guess to bring it back to gomburu that a uh, fighting spirit that all japan has to uh, to go to the the meaning of the title of gomburu and uh where we're at with the muto years is that they have fought and they will continue to fight so i think that's wonderful one thing i'll say too about muto as we are making our way to the end is that uh he has a great line about himself because the thing about Muto that's sort of fascinating is that he he is what he is but he has moments of great clarity is what I'll say about Muto (laughs) Um, there's this great line from your book where he says I have to say that I am confident about what I do inside the ring but when it comes to management I have wrecked two companies and he's referring (laughs) to not only all Japan but Wrestle One which closed shortly as the pandemic really got underway, I think is when Russell one closed. So 
that is quite the uh the sort of uh what, what would you call that a review of oneself as a boss <laughs> and as a manager so, um, so yeah to put that into context too um that was him being self-deprecating him making a joke about it i know that he yeah i hope that kind of yeah that, that that was the context anyway was that i think he was yeah he was joking but it definitely a self-deprecating thing for him someone like him to say you know on one hand being this guy that is known for winning so many matches for for being this star that everything is the the match that he has is his design for the match and tanahashi is that every when you're in a match with muto everything's about him and yet, then he goes and makes this very self-deprecating comment about how he's ruined two companies. So, yeah, definitely uh, not just an egomaniac. There's d- different sides to this guy. His way is so fascinating. Would you sort of agree with him? Do you think that he is just someone who has just kind of come through and wrecked two companies? And that is that a fair part of Mudo's legacy? Can we kind of pin that to his list of things that would make his legacy? Yes and no. So I think that if you're going to talk about the Muto years and the Muto legacy, you have to talk about all these guys he's trained. You have to talk about the triple crown being held as highly as he managed to hold it and the, how well all Japan was booked in these years. And you have to talk about the classics that we got. And yet, and yet like in a business sense, with how far down it went under his leadership with how much debt they accrued with the, way that he spent so much money bringing in bill goldberg for two shows squashing two of their biggest stars and then piecing out um which was meant to lead to eventually goldberg getting the triple crown things like that when you when you look at the way he spent money on the failed when i say the russell one concept i don't mean the promotion by that name i mean the big shows that ran at the rio goku at the uh, Tokyo Dome, these shows with MMA stars in them that were, were not that great, but then had, Bata and Akiyama had, had a classic in Wrestle 1 as one of the Wrestle 1 shows. But you have to consider that and the failure of those that concept uh, as part of Muto's legacy. So yeah, he is kind of responsible for the business problems that he incurred as well as the great things that he did. So I don't, I don't say he wrecked the company. I say that he definitely was on hand and he was at the helm when the company started experiencing such difficulties. We cannot thank you enough for coming on and talking about your excellent book and we can't plug the book enough, but um, if you could go ahead and give one last plug for the Muto years and where people could buy it and where people can find mm-hmm. you, Jonathan, that would be absolutely wonderful. Um, so I actually found out yesterday that the book's also available uh, at Barnes and Noble now. Um, on their store but the main place to get it is amazon if you search for the muto years on amazon you'll be able to find it it's also in the um, pinned tweet on my twitter profile um at jonathan foy uh where you can also get my random musings here and there about the pro wrestling industry links to articles here and there that I write. I try to shoehorn pro wrestling as much as I can into insights, which is to say not very often, but when I can, um, when I, I'll probably be reviewing soon. Once the first season's finished and when it properly drops over here, I'll hope to review um, Tales from the Territories mm. for that one. So you can see that stuff on there. But in the main, uh, just expect random talk about the wrestling industry pretty heavy wrestling content at my Twitter um, at the moment. 
And um, yeah, I hope to have more to say about the Noah book when that's properly underway at the moment. I mentioned off like before we started recording that I've got a little bit of a distraction at the moment in terms of coordinating a subject at uni. So that's getting in the way of proper wrestling writing at the moment. So yeah, hoping to get a bit more of that done soon and hoping to have more to say about it soon. Well, thank you. We're really, really looking forward to uh, that book and just really anything that you have coming at us. And like I said, cannot uh, recommend following him enough because there is a lot of really good content there. So, and if you wish to find us, of course, you can find us on Twitter at kickout299. You can find me, Rachel, at milkystar, that's M-I-I-K-Y star. And of course, you can find Alicia at Kai with two eyes. And if you guys wouldn't mind following us on your preferred uh, podcast platform, that's really helpful to us, giving us a five-star rating. If you like what you've been hearing, that helps people find us more. And we're really trying to grow Kickout and also Talking Triple Crown. So that would be very much appreciated. And we thank you guys so much.